Hello and welcome to How They Did It with me, Darby Worley. Joining me today on the show is Eddie Brill. Eddie is a comedian and a teacher and a lot of things. But I wanted to talk to him because he's also had some uh, challenges in his life. He's gone through um, some things. He's, he's gone through some stuff. And I wanted to talk to him about that as well as his amazing career. So we did just that. Take a listen. I'm okay. You know, I've had, um, it's been up and down craziness. You know, my mom passed not long ago and, uh, and it really, you know, it's odd because we're so close and we talked every day and she was, you know, always hilarious. And, you know, every once in a while I want to call her on the phone and go, so anyway, and you can't, and it's odd. But at the same time, I knew for a while that she was sick and that she would, you know, I didn't, you know, you never completely are you know prepared but i knew that she was ill so okay. it makes it a titch easier you know yeah you did know she was sick for some reason i th- I got the impression that it was kind of a shock the last few years she's had emphysema mm-hmm. and she's had a few bouts like she had mercer mercer mm-hmm. which nearly killed her and then she had a situation where we went to the hospital and you know i decided that in 2016 i went off into florida booked a lot of gigs down there so at least i got to see her a lot knowing that it would you know i'd be able to see her and i did and we i had a blast and we had a lot of fun and cool things happened and, and uh mm. you know she could hardly walk so she couldn't come to my gigs anymore i, I picked up a gig uh, about two minutes away from her and she just didn't have the energy to go so I wasn't in shock, but it yeah. just, you know, as anyone will tell you, when you lose someone like that, you, it's ne- it's never easy. Yeah. And I guess when it happens, it's always a shock at, at, at some level. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I've, and I've, I've lost a lot of people in my life. I've suffered a lot of loss. I've lost my, a sister when she was 34 and a brother when he was 35 and my stepfather was 37 and uh you know for all various reasons and so i spent a lot of time mourning and learning how to mourn in a sense of trying to uh find the best possible way to look at the celebrating their life i guess would be a better way to put it Mm -hmm. and trying to have that win over the mourning of their death well that's one of the reasons that i wanted to talk to you and forgive me but part, part of the reason i do this podcast is right. to get advice about things that I'm thinking about a lot. And, I, you know, my parents are starting to get older. My dad is 73. My mom is 70. Um, and so I, I guess it's just on my mind a lot. And what when you say that you have learned how to say goodbye and how to mourn, like, say more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny it's funny to hear you say those words and go, wait a second, how can you learn to mourn and how can you learn – because it's very difficult to, but when it happens often, it becomes, you realize, Hey, you know, people are going to die and people are dying every eight seconds or whatever they say. And somebody else is mourning. So the way the, the, the thing that makes sense to me is to celebrate the incredibleness of their life because everybody's going to die. The only thing that's changed for me is I, I think more of death lately uh, my best one of my I have two best friends and it's so it's hard to describe my best friend, but there's still one person around. One of my of my two best friends died last December. And that was devastating because we thought we were going to live forever and be funny and 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 run around the, the world together continually. And that didn't happen. But what made it easier is like, you know, the, look, listening to some of the music we had recorded together or the comedy bits we had done together or. And uh, although there's a sadness to it, you also realize, you know, in this life that we were together, we really took advantage of it. We really had a lot of fun and we made the best of it. And then the other part that I had started to say was I think about my own death. I'm thinking like, wow, you know, I woke up today to this interview with you. What if I didn't wake up? What happens? You know, (laughs) do I know? (laughs) I don't know. I want to know. Yeah. What do you think happens? Do you believe in God? Um, you know, it's an odd thing. I I believe it, it's a that's a deep question and I'm totally into answering it. I um I believe there's something, you know, there's some mm. explanation, but because it's too abstract for the human mind to really really understand, I don't worry about it so much. 
You know, I, I don't believe that one religion has the, it right and other religions have it wrong. I think the ego of, of man has it and, uh, and also the fear of loss of where do we go. I think a lot of, a lot of people, and sometimes I'm included, get nervous and want to have something to hold on to. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to die and then I'm going to see grandpa and, you know, we're going <laughs> to hang out and, you know, but I don't believe I don't believe that. Although, speaking of grandpa, I tell you two stories. One, I, I was I had two grandpas, one of like most people, you know, mm -hmm. some people have more because <laughs> they're stepfathers or step grandpas or whatever. But one grandpa was named Eddie, who I was named after, my mom's dad, and my father's dad, Nathan, um, I was born on his birthday. And uh, you know, Nathan lived longer and I spent a lot of time with him. But uh, Eddie died kind of young, and I, I knew him, but I didn't really grow up with them the way I wish I could have. Mm. Uh, so anyway, we were, we had, our family, my mom had got remarried in 1970. We moved to Florida away from everyone. There were two different religions involved, and that, you know, people, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not a big fan of organized religion. Yeah. Uh, you know, I see how it's helpful to people, but for me, I think it's, I, I believe it's, you know, kind of ego driven and foolish and gets in more people in more trouble than not. Yeah. And that's just me. I agree. Um, what's that? I'm sorry. I, I agree. I think, you know, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I think, the you know, most of our wars are caused, caused by religion. So that's my yeah. that's my thought about that. But anyway, you had you, you yeah. two religions in your family. And and so we moved away from New York because we wanted to get away from that because my mother and my stepfather were completely in love and it was so beautiful to be part of and to watch we had no money whatsoever and it didn't matter we had, were rich as corny as it sounds i almost mm -hmm. didn't finish the sentence because it sounded too corny we were rich in love and yeah. we had so much fun and one of these nights we were completely broke and i was working as a paper boy and my stepfather was working 70 hours a week for brinks and we put all our money left over we had money to go do our favorite thing was go to a movie and see and have ice cream now we didn't go to a movie this one night because my baby brothers were two baby brothers to go to the movies we would go to like the drive-in for mm. that but anyway i'm really going off on the point <laughs> my, and then when i and then and then the war came <laughs> what <laughs> and to make a long story short so they're pulling him out of the burning house and it's like where did you what hello no anyway so we're we were laughing uh, here here's the scenario my stepfather is in the passenger front seat holding one of the twins that were just born, one of my brothers. My mother was driving. I was behind my mother with the other twin, and my sister was to my right in the back seat. And we're laughing and having the time of our lives, and we're eating ice cream, which is our favorite, favorite thing in the world. And my mother was really wondering. She said, you know, I wonder if my father would approve of this. Because my uh, her father was, you know, very religious and very extremist. And my stepfather was, you know, Irish Catholic, you know, James Patrick Aloysius McNicholas. <laughs> and my uh, all of a sudden, when my mom said that out loud, my stepfather started singing to my the my brother on his lap. The song Abadabadabadabadabad said <laughs> the monkey to the chimp. And um I don't know if you, it, my voice is uh, high quality today, but that's my <laughs> version of it. And uh, all of a sudden, my mother hits the brake. Ah! And it was like, why did you sing that song? And my stepfather goes, I don't know. I never heard it before. And we freaked out. And she said, that's the song my father would sing to me when I was a little baby, you know, a little wow. girl. So, you know, it's like, oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, what did they put in this ice cream? <laughs> It was crazy. And then the second story was my, uh, I was in my bed. I was living, we had, I was born in New York. Now we're living in Florida in my room and there, I was watching TV and there was a light above the television from the street light behind the window that was coming in through the window, a sort of rectangular light, uh, pattern. And all of a sudden I saw the shadow go through that light pattern that looked like my grandfather, Nathan. Wow. And it was weird because the window was too high for him to just be walking back there or anyone. Mm -hmm. And th there was a fence in the backyard. I jumped up to look out there and there's nobody there. There's no noise. There's a lot of, if anyone was there, there'd be some noise. All of a sudden the phone rings. It was my grandmother saying, your grandfather just passed away. 
Wow. I know. Wow. <laughs> so, uh. so as weird as things are, there's things that we don't know. There are yeah. explanations that we don't, we can guess. So that brings us all back to, that brings us back to dough. <laughs> it brings back to the original question. You know, we're all, we're all going to die. So, you know, there's some things that go on. Will we, you know, am I going to be the fat Elvis or am I going to be the skinny Elvis? You know, <laughs> all the questions that we have. So instead of worrying about it and filling my life with a lot of superstition and, and that kind of thing, I'm much happier that I don't have that, that I just think, okay, make the best of what you have while you're here. Let people know you care for them and, uh, and have fun, be creative to things that make you smile, eat yeah. ice cream. Yeah, lots, all the ice cream, all the ice cream. So, guys, um, the voice you're hearing right now is one of Eddie Brill. Eddie is a comedian. He's a teacher. He's a lot of things. But I would say, I mean, at your very essence, comedian is your is your is who you are. Right? Yeah, I like that. I like that one. That's my favorite one. <laughs> how did you, How did you get started? I went, like, do you remember your like the, your first telling of jokes? Was this a childhood thing? When did you When did you get started? When did you know you were well, funny? My mother and father were very funny and huge comedy fans and. Uh, we had comedy albums in the house. I never thought I'd be one, but I loved them. We had, you know, Bob Newhart and uh, Bill Cosby. And, uh, you know, we had uh, some other brothers. We had a lot of albums. Shelley Berman, uh, Tony Fields. <laughs> you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was an interesting era of comedy. And there was a lot of great comics. And my parents, we'd go to, you know, like they, you know, again, they were very broke, but they would take money every once in a while and go see show, go to a Broadway show. They take me to see Broadway. Uh, you know, I got to see funny girl with Barbara Streisand. I got to see, um, the producers, um, with not the producers, um, uh, filler on the roof with zero Mostel. I thought the producers zero Mostel. you know, so we did a lot of creative things. And I remember one time, especially, um, my sister and I were in this hotel and, and uh, we were being babysat for while my parents went to go see Buddy Hackett. And they came through the door laughing. Now, the interesting thing about that is they were probably laughing because Buddy Hackett was brilliant. Mm -hmm. but uh, And he was. Um, but they had to see the show, laugh, 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 um, pay the bill, <laughs> you know, when the show was over, walk up the stairs, take the elevator, whatever they did at the time, come to the door and still were laughing. And I remember how my mom looked she loved she she was you know people are more beautiful when they laugh mm -hmm. and uh my mom was radiating you know with this laughter and uh i always wanted to make her laugh mm -hmm. <laughs> you know i wanted to bring that out because she was you know it, it was just really fun to watch her be happy so you know i would read joke books and i'd uh, then i fell in love with george carlin and I memorized his records and, you know, he was, I saw him on the tonight show with Johnny Carson and it was just so exciting. And so I would, you know, I was very shy growing up, but I would make people laugh. And that was the way to be accepted or also I played a lot of street sports in Brooklyn. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I was pretty good at them. So that also was weird, you know, uh, rites of passage if you're a good punch ball player well you know you're in the group and you know <laughs> so i would make people laugh and do that but in essence i was a very shy little boy and uh you know i would i was more like a lover like i would say at home with my little hairbrush and sing songs to girls i liked in elementary school <laughs> because i love you and then what i, I want to know what skills you learned out playing stickball or whatever your street sports were that served you well in comedy later mm, that's interesting i could only guess that it would be you know uh competition and uh and you know to i don't know i'd be creative i guess i I don't know if I learned being creative by playing street sports. I just learned that it was, you know, we were street smart. My parents, uh, my mother graduated high school eventually. My father didn't right away, but they were very smart. They were very, they really knew the streets. Uh, they were, they were born in Brooklyn as well. And they, my father was an incredible baseball player. He played at Lincoln high school and weirdly enough, gave up his baseball career because he married my mom, but he was superstar. He was the hottest kid baseball player in new york and in the day so there was always sports going on in my house and 
my street was which seems so big and i go back to brooklyn now and it's like oh my god it's so small mm. um we played a lot of sports on the street and we had so much fun and we laughed and we i guess i don't know i don't know if, if there is a connection i guess everything is a connection did you ever get bullied or were you a bully or were you a little of both what, what where did you fall in the mm. the bully hierarchy when you were a kid yeah i i was just short and chubby like my father mm-hmm. i got tall a freakish summer one summer i grew like almost five, six inches, and it was crazy. But I was short and chubby, and I got, you know, uh, pushed around a little bit. But by being funny, I think that helped, mm. you know, any real major bullying. There, it really, it wasn't really bad. We were, you know, we were, kids are mean to each other in, in a lot of ways. But I was very, sec- it was a very secure thing in Brooklyn. We each had our own block, mm. our own street, and everyone looked out for each other and uh, parents and and our friends and you know we were, we we had a sort of a sheltered thing we didn't really run off the the block unless we had to yeah. so so you so, so you were born in brooklyn grew up a little bit here moved to florida how did you end up back in new york um well i after high school i graduated high school and went to school in boston i just went there um <clears throat> you know my uncle taught at umass amherst and he had recommended a college um i was thinking of doing some broadcasting. I went to school to study broadcast journalism. And luckily I had an amazing teacher who's still my friend all these million years later. And, um, you know, I fell off of broadcast journalism because I did an internship in New York uh, during the summer for ABC Eyewitness News. And it was the ugliest profession. And the people who were in it were very, uh, they were drinking a lot because they hated having to be part of this the news is gross you know it's uh it's you know whatever bleeds that that leads and they're interviewing people and they're crying and it just wasn't pretty and making people laugh was a lot (laughs) excuse me a lot more fun and uh so um i ended up in school in boston and the first couple of weeks of school i met my first friends and we formed a comedy group and we started doing improv and sketch. And I was in the very first sketch of our Emerson College, Emerson Comedy Workshop. Got a big laugh right away. And that hooked me. You're like, stuck. You're hooked. And, yeah. And I've been chasing that laugh the rest of my life. So how did you get the job? So Eddie was um, was uh, Letterman's booker and warm-up comic for almost 20 years, right? Yeah. How, I, how did you get that job? Well, when I was in L.A., I, there was a time in the late 80s where I lived in both New York and L.A., um, and it was kind of fun, and I shared apartments in both cities with comedians, and uh, and I was really taken in by incredible comedians. Uh, two of them, or well, three of them that I can mention, are Robert Schimmel, uh, Sam Kinison, and John Mendoza. They mm. looked after me, uh, and they made sure that I was working, and they made sure that you know, if I was doing something positive to, to, you know, keep doing that. And if I was doing something that wasn't, you know, to get away from that. So I was living back and forth, New York and LA. And, um, all of a sudden I, you know, got a, uh, I was, you know, completely broke because we were just working spots, local spots. And a friend I went to college with had got me the warm up gig for saved by the bell. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was, awesome. it was, it was, it was really babysitting, yeah. you know, very young audiences. And, uh, and, but it was, you know, the best part about that job was, well, I made good money. I made like a thousand dollars a week, which to me was a million dollars at that time. Oh, and back then that's a lot of yeah, money. It was. And, um, and that, but even more important, I was literally five feet from the tonight show with Johnny Carson. It was mm-hmm. across the hall and it was just so exciting to be around that, you know, that happening all the time. And then I got a couple other warm up gigs along the way. I worked at the Dana Carvey show for a little bit. And Louis C.K. worked there mm-hmm. as a writer, and and uh, and then he started working at Letterman, and he recommended me when they were looking for a new warm-up. So in 1997, I had a six-week trial period, um, which turned into 17 years, which was amazing. I got to be on that amazing stage every night for 17 years, and I got very close to Dave because his assistant, Lori Diamond, had also gone to Emerson College, um, and Lori made it really easy for me to uh, have a relationship with Dave. Mm-hmm. And I it got to a point where 
very quickly, I was able to, in every commercial break, I was at the desk with Dave, either talking about life or coming up with something funny or whatever, you know, just, it was, I was, you know, had this incredible, uh, you know, I was in part of an incredible, I was in this nest of incredible talent and, and integrity. And it was just amazing. And we talked about comedy all the time. And at one point, Zoe Friedman, who got me booked on Letterman, uh, she got a job in LA with comedy central, which was really, really amazing. And, uh, you know, and <clears throat> excuse me, they, um, you know, I, so, well, the, the, just to back it up a little bit, what happened was, is I was there all the time, warming, warming up. We talked about comedy. Zoe left to go to LA and they were looking for a new comedy booker okay. and they suggested that I would do it because I had been booking. I ran a comedy club in, 1984 through 88 in New York city called the paper moon. Mm. And you know, that was, I was giving, you know, I just found a list of like 1985's booking and the list is incredible. It's like Brett Butler and John Stewart. And, you know, I mean, the names you just go up and down the the list and, you know, John Regi and Liz Winstead and, (laughs) you know, and, uh, you know, uh, Wendy Liebman and, you know, just, it was an amazing list of, uh, of comedians who I, you know, Sue Kalinsky and Kenny Ober, and I can go on and on and on. It's just powerful group when everyone was young, Susie Essman, Mario Cantone. Um, so I knew a lot about comics and booking and I knew what Dave liked because I was such a huge fan of the show that I became the booker. And I asked them when they said, would you book it? I said, I will, but I want a comic every week. That was my, my want because they only had like 12 comics a year or 15 comics a year. And they said, we're going to give you one a month. And when you start out and then we'll see how you do. And we'll, we'll revisit it. Well, the first week, um, I was booking, um, I guess who was I booking first? Andy Kindler. Mm-hmm. Um, the week before that, um, someone canceled last minute and I was working with Jeff Stilson who used to work for Dave Letterman as a writer, as a brilliant comic writer. Um, all of a sudden a guest couldn't come and, and, and Stilson was around New York and they said, we need a guest. Do you have any comedians? So I was working with Stilson. I put Stilson on and he it was phenomenal and he tore the roof off the place. And I went to dinner to celebrate with a friend of mine. A phone call came and, uh, Dave wants to see you. And I was like, okay. And I went back to the office and they were all sitting around. They go, look, this was really great tonight. And you have a comic every week. Oh, wow. We're going to clear off Fridays and that's going to be your night for comedy, which was beautiful, but also a little difficult because I had never booked a television show. I had to not only book comics at the same time I had to, um, you know, I had, I had to sort of work on the sets with the comedians and produce the segment. Yeah. So it was a lot of work right away. And I booked, a, you know, and I kept booking my heroes. I, you know, I booked, you know, George Carlin and the Smothers Brothers and uh, Roseanne Barr and just one after the other, boom, 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 right away. And uh, and it went well. It was just a little difficult to every week to get it, you know, to it, this was very hard. But, you know, and I made some mistakes along the way, but then it got really down to a groove. And uh, and I did that for about 12 years. I booked uh, the comics on the show and it was it was, you know, to be part of that show, to be able to do. To, to create something on a show that I adored to make a difference, to help uh, some young comedians lives or whatever. It was very rewarding. It really was fun. And when Dave would like the comedian, that was like your father approving of, you know, like you're getting the base hit during the big little league game for your father, you yeah, know? So, so would he, would he have to approve the person or he just let you choose? And it was, um, and the person was automatically on. There was, you know, there's a hierarchy, you know, there's executive producers um, and there's other producers and there's the main show booker. And, uh, you know, so we had to go through different people. I mean, they trusted me when I brought people in, but also I had to get the material approved. And there's many times I'd get the comedian and they'd say, well, they can't do this show or they can't do this. I'm like, why not? And, you know, there's a big learning process. It's a, um, you know, uh, I couldn't just book my favorite comedians because not all of my favorite comedians were in the style of the Letterman show, which was more quirky, you know, word, uh, material oriented comedians like, you know, Jake Johansson's a perfect example of someone. He's the one who did the show more than anybody else ever. And so I had to find comics in, you know, I had a book it for Dave. Yeah. And most of the time he loved the comedians that I booked. And 
you know, and sometimes he didn't. And, uh, and that's, you know, it's weird, but you just have to just, how you know, did he let you know that he didn't like, how, what were those conversations like? Um, I was, it was more how he, you could see him in his body language or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, he, you know, and some producers would come up and go, that's not a person for our show. And that didn't happen often. It happened very occasionally, but you know, still you want, you want, you know, he was like a father figure to me. I want every, uh, I want him to like everything I did, you know? So, mm-hmm. but it was okay. It was, it was all right. It was, uh, it was really sweet. It was weird because now I'm looking at thousands of videotapes and, uh, and I work all over the world. So I was not only looking at American comics, British, Irish, Australian comics as well. And because I had done Letterman as a guest and because I know what it's like to be a comedian who wants to be seen by the booker, I made it a, 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 a vow that I'd be available for everyone. And, uh, and I thought that would be fantastic. And in a way it wasn't, you, you can't please everyone because if you tell them they don't have the show, they think you're an, a jerk or they think you're an asshole or, you know, there are comics that I, and I won't mention any names cause I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but there's comics that I loved that I couldn't get on the show. I mean, two in particular that I think are two of the greatest comics ever, but it just didn't fit the scenario. And I couldn't say to these comics, well, you know, the production staff got together and this is not what they want, you know, because it hurts to hear that. But the the point I'm trying to make is I, I would audition, I'd, I'd audition, say 10 comics uh, on a, and I would, as being a comedian, like if I'm working the Denver comedy works on the Sunday, they would put up 10 of their best local comics. Um, that made it easier. They didn't have to come to New York or I didn't have to go to, they didn't have to go to LA. I came to their hometowns. You know, I did a, I did a showcase in Sydney, Australia. I, I did two of them. I did uh, two in Dublin, in, in Ireland, which was really great. <clears throat> so my, what I vowed was that what I wanted was at the end of every audition, I wanted to find out why I got the show or why I didn't get the show. If I was in the game, you know, if I, if I was close. So I would stay at the end and I would make notes and I'd go through every comedian we come through and I, and I wouldn't say, you know, you have to do this. And one of the things I told comedians is do not try to change who you are as a comedian to get on this show. You, it, because you don't get on the show doesn't mean you suck. It just means you're not right for the show. Um, and, uh, but you know, people mostly wanted to hear you got the show, <laughs> but I would always, but, you know, so it was really difficult because a lot of people I'm I'm one of those people who like to be liked by everyone, which is, yeah. you know, well, that's a pretty common trait amongst um, entertainers. What's that? <laughs> that's a pretty common trait amongst entertainers, isn't it? Isn't that why we all do this? I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. You know, for being a guy like that, it was the worst job to have because you know, there are people who hate me. And not a, I, not a lot that I know of. It could be a, a lot, but there are a few people who hate me because I didn't book them on the show and they expressed their, their unhappiness. And you just have to learn that. And there's a great book called the four agreements, which really has helped me a lot in my life. Mm. Um, don't meet Ruiz. You know, this book I, oh, inside and out. I read it at least once a year for the past yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the agreements is not to take things personally because yes. it's up to people projecting their fears onto you, which is mostly true. There was a manager who said, what is it? Why do you hate me? Why do you not use any of my clients before? And I was like, I don't really know who your clients are. You never send me a list. I book the, you know, the best possible comedians who fit this show, fit the mentality uh, that Dave has done for 33 years. You know, he he's always booked a certain kind of comic. And, uh, so, you know, when these people would be angry that I didn't book them, it's like, I'm, I'm sorry. You know? Uh, so I was telling you, this manager said, I didn't, how come you, you don't like me? I said, no, I, I like you a lot. I've known you for a million years. I helped you when you started, uh, doing bookings and stuff like that. I turned you on to this club that you ended up booking. And he said, Oh, okay. Because I thought maybe it was something about me. I said, no, nothing. Mm. You know, it's just, it's funny. That's, it's, it's sad. It's the, it's the hard part of that job, but the good outweighed the bad all the way around. Yeah, you went through a really rough experience and I'll let you tell the story, but I'm talking about, of course, about the New York Times article 
that, yeah, that I was, I was, yeah i want i want i want to let you tell that story and then i want you to talk about that you know now that it's been what about five years since that all went down yeah it was 2012 uh january when the article came out yeah you know i was working at letterman for a long time booking the comics and uh it was a really good time in my life the end of 2011 um i had gotten in the best shape of my life i learned uh, a lot about food and nutrition and I lost 135 pounds and I felt um, like not only was I in good shape and could wear nicer clothes and all that kind of thing, which Dave always wanted us to do is dress up nice. He was very classy that way. Um, at the same time, I had just did a, an appearance on Letterman. Now, you know, people think that I did the show every year and I didn't. I didn't do it that often. As a matter of fact, in nine years, I did it like twice because I didn't have enough spots for other people. And Dave kept saying, you know, uh, you should be doing it every year. But as the booker, I felt a little weird, like, oh, I'm great, you know, like I'm yeah. booking me. But when you can't book everyone, you, you know, when you can't, don't have that many spots, you can't get in there. So, but I had just done a spot on the show. Um, I felt like I looked good. <laughs> I felt like the material went down great. And then at the same time, it was a CBS This Morning show where I was, me and Joey Cola and another comedian, they were featuring on warm-ups, comedians. And it was so great to be on one of my favorite shows, the CBS this morning, whatever, Sunday morning. And things were going good. And then a writer at the Letterman show came up to me and said, hey, you know, a, a friend of mine wants to interview you um, for the New York Times about, you know, booking and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, cool, great. Because, you know, I figured that this person had, my mistake is that this person had, the interest of the show in mind that 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 um, that they wanted to you know find out about the booking. I thought it would be helpful if in the New York Times, you know, they asked me what I look for in booking and all this other kind of stuff, that <clears throat> I'd be able to share that. And yeah. you know, and and I thought, well, everyone's on my side, which is great. Now, the, the the mistake that I made was I didn't tell the show that I was doing the interview. I've done a million interviews. I didn't even think of the New York Times as you know one of the international newspapers but everything's actually international now you can be quoted in the you know the dayton free press and then it goes all over the world right. it doesn't matter and i don't know if there's a dayton free press but <laughs> the, <laughs> so i do the interview with the guy and the guy seems okay and he asked me a lot of questions and he keeps focusing on the fact that we didn't have a lot of women comics that year and, I, and you know and i have to protect the show in a sense and i did book a bunch of female comedians and uh, or tried to and a couple of them had gotten you know they said no we're we don't want these comedians and uh, and at the time i had booked karen rontowski i'll mention her name because here is a woman who kind of in her 40s at the time and in our business they really the tv networks were not generous to people unless you were 20 and you were sure you know, had a certain look. And I thought Karen was just one of the funniest comedians in the world. <clears throat> and I put her on the show and she crushed and Dave loved her. And it was, it was so great. And then I had a couple other comedians. Carmen Lynch is one of them that I was working with. And, um, uh, a couple other comedians I was working with getting them ready to do spots for the following year. So, you know, it wasn't like I was not booking female comedians. I was booking comedians and I, Put them so then this guy kept pushing me and pushing me about you know female comps and I said you know and what I said and I don't I don't understand I don't know if he didn't understand me or he wanted to make it appear a certain way but I had said to him I had recently got a but here's the idea I had recently got a bunch of tapes from and videos from female comedians who were acting like misogynistic men comics who we wouldn't book on the show yeah. And what I wanted to say was, if these comedians, and he was pushing the female angle on it, you know, were more authentic, just as the same advice I'd give a, a, a male comic, the more authentic you are, like uh, Joan Rivers or Lily Tomlin or my favorite comic of all time, Paula Poundstone, mm -hmm. you know, if you're more authentic, then you'll probably get a booking. But at the time, I'd seen a few comedians in a row that were, and I said acting like men, meaning acting like misogynistic men who wouldn't get on the show either. Yeah. You know, so he only put in the words about, you know, it looked like I was, you know, and I never said women weren't funny because that's not true. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the paper comes out in January. And the things that pissed me off more than the female thing is uh, um, the 
guy who wrote the article kept asking me for a list of the comedians that performed that year. And I gave him the list. And Amy Schumer made a statement to start the article off about, you know, and on the Letterman show, all they book are middle Midwestern white middle-aged men. And if you look at the list, there was only one person who fit that list. It was Jake Johansson, who actually lived in L.A. Um, there, there was Karen Rontowski, who's from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. There were uh, seven comics getting their network television debut that year out of the 18 or 19 that I booked. There was a Chinese comedian. There was a Bangladeshi comedian. There were, you know, four or five African-American comedians. Uh, there were many comedians who were younger than Amy Schumer. So what she said was... I don't think she was being mean. I, I am not in her shoes. I don't know. I think that's the way she saw, you know, at that time, I thought she was very, very funny, but she wasn't right for our show. Then the second part of it was, is uh, Anthony Jeselnik wrote, Eddie Brill um, does, you know, and Anthony Jeselnik is a brilliant comedy writer, an incredible performer, and I always liked his stuff and still like his stuff. But he wasn't right for the show because he played a sort of character. And Letterman always wanted that authentic who you are as a human on the show. We very rarely, if any time, ever had comics who were sort of charactery. Because, you know, um, Jesselneck had like rape jokes and stuff like that. Yeah, if, sure. I mean, I don't know. I, don't have, right. I haven't followed his career lately, but I was <clears> turned <throat> off by what I saw from him early on. I was like, ah, he's not my, he's yeah. not my type. Yeah, and I, I knew he wasn't Letterman's type, you know, and uh, but he wrote that I was I had the corner on comedy because I was running this comedy festival in Nebraska and um, and that I was running these workshops and that I was forcing young comedians to take my workshop as a, a ways to get booked on the show, which would he would never know that to be true, which it wasn't yeah. true. I've been teaching since I've been in college. I've been teaching since 1980. Um, and I love teaching and, uh, I would tell every workshop before I started, this is not an audition for Letterman. Uh, you're welcome to leave if that's what you think it is. And all, one person left in all the 20 or so years <laughs> I taught. Um, and there was an Australian person who said, oh, I came here. I thought it was an audition. And then later on in the article, I read the quotes that he pulled about the female comics and it looks like horrible. Yeah. And I was just, my heart was in my stomach. It's like, this is hard. And all of a sudden, the newspapers are writing like I every year Variety magazine would call me and say, uh, who are the top comics coming up? And I would give them names and I gave, you know, like it's funny, a partner on Cheryl, who's one of my favorite comedians. I found her in 2008 and uh, 2015 comics to watch in these in like Comedy Central says a partner on Cheryl. It's like seven years ago. I told Variety that she was great. I had, you know, I'd always talked about male and female comics, never trying to, you know, pick males or females. I just picked who were the hottest comics in the country at the time. And I'd always been looking out for female comics, you know, Carmen Lynch, I, you know, I think is one of the greatest comics ever and she's having a very good career. And, you know, I saw Sashir Zamata, Zameda before mm -hmm. she did Saturday Night Live. And I said, oh my God, I went up to her and I said, you're one of the greatest performers I've ever seen in my life. So I've always been supportive of comics. Um, I never turn down a video that people send me, even if they've been doing it for six months. So this article comes out <clears throat> and all of a sudden the Letterman show calls me in and they, you know, they sort of are like pissed off. And I'm like, well, I, you know, they said, you didn't tell us about the article. And I was like, yes, I, that was my mistake. I didn't tell them. I didn't even think about that, which yeah. was, that was the big mistake I made. But I said, none of this is true. This is all created drama that didn't exist. And they, but Letterman had been in the newspaper because he had a supposed affair with one of his assistants. And, uh, and at the same time, very shortly thereafter, he was in the paper for, um, not having any female writers at the show. Mm. So now this came up and, uh, you know, who gets the ax, not, you know, Cheney or Bush, Libby, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, so I was the one who got the ax and I'm saying, why are you doing this to me? I've been so dedicated to you guys. I haven't taken a day off in 14 years. You know, I've been there for you every step of the way and it just hurt my heart, but they were protecting Dave. And you have to understand that he's the brand. Eddie Brill is, you know, comes later in the alphabet than brand. So, you know, he, he's the, he's, 
he's the guy and they're not going to stand by. They did decided not to stand by me. And then it just was devastating. And I was spinning in every newspaper sexist. And they were saying how, <clears throat> you know, and there was the so opposite to be true. I'll show you my papers mm -hmm. from, you know, 1984 when I booked female comics every week, you know, uh, every week I was always booking female comics. They had the, I understand the anger because it's true. The business and our society treats women poorly, you know, it always has been since the beginning of the Bible, since the beginning of time, since, you know, uh, women couldn't vote. They weren't real humans. We vote. Women have been treated poorly. I was lucky. I grew up around all women, my sister, my mother, my aunts, my cousins are all women. They're all funny. I was I always knew to treat women with respect. And all of a sudden, these papers are coming out, making up stories about me. Oh, he's past his prime. You know, he's only picking old white guys, you know, like like he is. He's this old white guy. And the truth is, there was the list. The, yeah. if, the if the guy who wrote the article really cared about the truth, he would have said, Amy Schumer, you know, I have the list here of comedians. And they're not, none of them, except for one, Jake Johansson, the only one who fits your description. So I wouldn't even have put that in the article. But this person was trying to, it's, it appears that this person was trying to cause a ruckus. Now I'm freaking out. The Letterman show didn't stand by me. They kept me on the show as, as the warm up. Um, but, you know, and I got, of course, a million great calls. You know, Liz Winstead called me right away and, yeah. you know, and um, Bonnie McFarlane and uh, Lisa Lampanelli. They talked in the papers and said, Eddie, you got the wrong guy. You know, uh, Bonnie McFarlane made a movie called Women Aren't Funny. It's a, you know, a joke that women aren't, you know, that whole mm -hmm. thing. And, did I have 40 minutes on tape of Eddie just saying women are great, women are great, and women are blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that wasn't pu pushed. And then at the same time, you know, um, Elaine Boozer went on a rampage against me online, which is weird because I she was booked on the show twice. So she's saying there's no female comics on the show. She was booked twice. The first time she booked the show, she, I was just starting out as the booker, and she didn't know who I was, and she told the producers, look, I... I'm excited to do the show, but I don't know who Eddie Brill is, and I'd rather work with someone that I know from the show. So I was like, okay, you know, whatever. Only, you know, only like two people had ever done that in the time I was there. And she did that, and it was okay. And you know what? Her set didn't work out really well. She fumpered the ending of it, and they weren't going to have her back. And she begged to be back on the show, and she said she would work with me. So we put together a fantastic set together. She was very lovely to me. And then um, she went out on the on the set and the show tape and she went off script. And that's one of the, oh, the yeah, she that was, you know, and so they decided the show decided that she wasn't going to be back on the show because I, I booked this guy from um, who was born in India, who worked out of Australia, who's one of my favorite comedians in the world. And he went off script. And of course, he wasn't invited back. So it wasn't mm. picking on her. But she went on a rampage throughout the Internet. Eddie Brill. And then she lied, like she said, oh, and Eddie Brill, this is what a friend of mine said, you know, who knew Elaine said, yeah, she told me that, you know, you asked, she asked you to book her and you told her flat out that you were saving that spot for yourself, <laughs> which, is, which is weird because even if I was that asshole, which I will promise you I wasn't, yeah. um, well, why you're not, would I You're not her? a stupid asshole. You're not a stupid right. asshole. I, you I, wouldn't, I, have, right, you wouldn't well, have admitted that. Well-educated asshole. <laughs> and I would never tell her that. Plus, the fact is I had nothing to do with the fact that she, you know, wasn't on the show. She had everything to do with it. So there's that blaming that four agreements again. Yeah. She's projecting her fears onto me. And it was so unfair. And I, I actually try to take the high road and reach out to her through friends and saying, let's chat this out. This is not good. So anyway, now I'm warming up the show and I lost the booking job. And I felt I, my, my heart was ripped out. So. Um, I wrote, uh, the biggest mistake I made was I, I, other than tell, doing the interview without asking, I had written back a response to all of the things that people were saying. And one of the things that I wanted to point out was the fact that Amy Schumer and, um, Anthony Jeselnik were two of the people who trashed me, but at the time they were boyfriend and girlfriend and lived together. Um, I was more pissed at Anthony. I wasn't pissed at, um, you know, at Amy because I think she just didn't get it. She didn't watch the show enough to know that there, that the quote that she made was completely off the mark. 
So I was, I said, you know, that damn Anthony and blah, 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 and his girlfriend, you know, wanting to let people know that this was not just two different comedians. This is people who live together. And then all of a sudden people went, oh, his girlfriend, you know, racist piece of shit. And, you know, and it's like, what? No, uh, that's not what, you know, and you could create what you want that I said, or create what you want in your mind that happened. But none of that is true. I, you know, I, I. I, I stood up for Amy when people were saying she was ripping people off and I stood behind her and said that I don't think she is. And people were like, didn't she screw with you at the New York Times? And I said, I don't think she really did it on purpose. And uh, so, you know, I was never really angry with her. I was angry with the reporter who had to, had the knowledge that her list was wrong. So I wrote this thing and also two comedians that I know, and I don't want to mention their names because I don't want them to get bad press from this person who writes the press. They said, you know, this uh, writer wrote to me and wanted trash on you. And I said, I have no trash. He's been very good to me. He's been a great person. And, uh, and, and this other comedian from LA, the same thing. And I'm like, what, why, Wow. why would this person want to create negative imagery why me? You know, why, what did I do to him? What did I, why am I the guy? Well, I just happened to be the guy and it actually messed up my life. You know, it was not, and I didn't deserve it. And what I was saying before, women have every right to be angry that they're not getting the exposure that they deserve on television. Um, you know, like people like Amy Poehler, who I've worked with for years and years and years back in the UCB days when I would do stand up for them. She's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And, you know, having her, you know, hosting these award shows. She's the funniest, one of the funniest people I know. Um, but it, it's very rare that it happened. And I understand that female comics needed something to, you know, some, you know, I'm the wrong person. I wasn't the person that female comics needed to use as an example of not treating females well, because the truth is I was in their corner just as I am for male comics or whatever comics all the way through my career. Then I got a letter from one of the executive producers from Letterman. Oh, here's the other thing. The Letterman show, the booker of the show, and most of the executive producers were all females. Mm-hmm. And if I, and the, the booker of the show was a female, and the two executive producers were females, and the associate producer. And Letterman trusted these female people to be in charge, not because they're female, because they were incredibly great at what they do. I was very blessed to work with incredible people. If I was a sexist, they wouldn't have let me have the job for 12 years. Yeah. You know, that would have ne- that never happened. So one of the executive producers wrote me this beautiful letter that I still have. That just says, you know, this writer was a jerk and, you know, we don't, I don't even want to mention this person's name, but we trust you and, you know, we just happened and we needed to act really quickly and we're very sorry. And then I had to sit down with Dave and he said, look, you got screwed and sorry, but we're only going to be here for another year. And, we, you know, this kind of a thing. And hmm. what can I do? There's nothing I can do, you know, yeah. just, to, just to eat food and gain the weight back and, you know. <laughs> And be miserable because, you know, all I have been doing my whole life is being, you know, incredible to comedians and and open to them. And I've been fighting for them. I fought for so many comedians and so many comedy things. People have no idea the kind of stuff I did behind I've done behind the scenes for 30 plus years for comedians. And I'm not the person who's going to say, hey, I did this. I did this. But I have. And I and if they only knew they I think they would say, my God, I had this guy wrong. Yeah. And what oh. I what I love about you, there's lots of things I love about you, but um, you have been, managed to, to seemingly anyway, come through this experience without feeling bitter. I mean, you, you justifiably sound angry, but you don't sound bitter. Yeah, how, I don't, how you do know, you do that? It's, it's, it's hard because, you know, it did hurt, yeah. really hurt, you know, because I, I was with Letterman for 17 years, you know, 17 years of my life. And <clears throat> as a comedian, I sacrificed a lot of my own comedy because I was watching thousands of other videos of comedians and I spend more time getting comics booked as opposed to myself. So I gave up a lot of, you know, like I was asked to be on Kirby Enthusiasm. I was asked to be on a few shows and I had to turn them down because the policy I had was, you know, if there was a show being taped, I had to be on it. I didn't have a day off for 14 years. Like I said, of the 17, I took one day off because I had surgery, you know, that broke my 14 year thing. Um, but I was really bummed out. I was, couldn't believe that these people didn't back me 
um, up and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so it, it, it did make me, my heart hurt and my stomach hurt and it really was horrible, but I just kept remembering, you know, keep your integrity, walk with your head high, know that you never did anything bad, but it, you know, so, but I was very sad, very mm-hmm. sad because there are comedians who, who, you know, there are people in the world who think that, you know, I'm a sexist, I'm a this, I'm a that. And, you know, again, uh, that's, I'll, I'll wear, I'll wear a lot of my faults proudly and try to fix them, but that's one that I never, ever was. And it's unfair. And, you know, and that, and because of it, I'm not really, do, I'm doing a lot of amazing things still. Yeah. A podcast that people have really gone crazy for called The Break with Eddie Brill, where I interview a lot of great comedians and talk about how they started. And I also have, um, a, production company deals that I'm working on and and I run these festivals and I do stand up like crazy and storytelling but deep down inside there's a lot of things that I you know believe that I would be involved with if that thing never happened yeah and that's the stuff I I, that makes me angry more than bitter because bitter doesn't help yeah bitter is not a is not a useful emotion anger can be, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, but bitterness is not so much. Well, Eddie, I could talk to you for hours, but I have to go to an audition, and I think that's a good spot, oh. a good spot to stop anyway. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> tell, tell the people again the name of your podcast. It's called The Break with Eddie Brill, and it's on either SoundCloud or iTunes, both for free. I interviewed Mario Cantone and Susie Essman and Colin Quinn and Kevin Meany just before he passed, and Stephen mm-hmm. Wright, and um, the tonight. Uh, well, there's a bunch of them coming coming up and all that kind of stuff. Um, so please listen to that. And, uh, you know, and you're on, uh, tw- are, you, are you on Twitter? Can people find you on, on the internet? Yeah, well? Eddie underscore Brill. You know, I have a Facebook page and, you know, I have a eddiebrill.com, which is brand new. We're restructuring that. And so things are, you know, things are good. I'm still doing what I love for a living. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate this. And, uh, and thank you so much. Oh, it's good to talk to you, Eddie. I will put links to all that stuff in the show notes. Thank you so much. It was lovely to hear your voice. Thank you. Same here, Darby. All right. Take care, honey. Bye. Bye. I had so much more that I wanted to talk to Eddie about because he really has smart things to say about things like food and our food supply in this country and politics and addiction. And he's just a really smart guy. So I do highly recommend that you check out his podcast. It's called The Break with Eddie Brill, and you can find it on iTunes or wherever you get podcast if you're a Google Android kind of person and he's on SoundCloud all the regular podcast places I'll also post links to his Facebook and his Twitter he's a good person to follow and you might learn a thing or two from Eddie Brill I know I have thanks so much for listening to How They Did It How They Did It is produced in partnership with Pregame Magazine if you would like to read some great articles about how you might live a more full robust successful, productive life, I recommend that you check out pregamemagazine.com. Our music is provided by Girls Like Bass. You can hear more from them at girlslikebass.com. As for me, you can connect with me and follow me over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Darby or on Twitter, I am at Darby W. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another episode in about a month or so. Take care. <laughs>